Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us, and so, it's recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, everybody? we got a really fun actual comedy here today. Yeah, we thought, you know, nine episodes is long enough before we dive into a pure comedy, and uh, to get going on that, I did want to ask you, Tay, uh, how do you feel about board games? Do they make you angry at family members? Do you uh, Have you lost relationships over them? Uh, maybe only like a couple times with a couple games, but no, for the most part, I'm not uber competitive, uh, and neither is my family, so board games were never something that like we killed each other over, but definitely like a part of competitive Mm-hmm. familial activities yeah i definitely like as as a kid it was definitely more incendiary among family members like we had i've got five siblings and we get around a monopoly board with our grandma and uh it really like it it triggered some animalistic oh well monopoly is a different animal. yeah and like it, i mean it was especially critical when i had a younger brother who realized that he didn't want to win anymore he just wanted to keep me from getting what i wanted which is a really like Machiavellian take on it. it basically like no matter how much I would offer him he would refuse to sell me the orange uh, properties I love it which uh, are mathematically the most uh, profitable just based on dice rolls and uh, he figured out that there was more for him to gain just by not giving them to me even when I would double their value in a trade um, yep we've gotten past it you know some therapy some <laughs> some some communication some extra work we're we're on we're on a good playing level now but uh, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was a point of a lot of stress as kids. Well, I guess that kind of leads us right into the main subject of the film here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking about Game Night this week. It's a 2018 movie. It's directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. Uh, yeah, it came out in 2018. And uh, just a brief synopsis, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, Max and Annie's weekly game night is kicked into high gear when Max's visiting brother Brooks arranges for a fake kidnapping. The three couples playing the game soon find out that it and Brooks are more than they appear, leading them on a chaotic night of fun, danger, and more. Game Night stars Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams, and Kyle Chandler, and debuted on February 23rd, 2018. Yeah, we're going to get into it, but also a great supporting cast here. Uh, mm-hmm. This is one heck of a movie. I gotta say, like, rewatching it for the third and kind of third and a half times this week, wow, like, this movie makes me laugh, it makes me... It, it astonishes me with its cinematography, its music, just so many good elements of this movie, great elements of this movie. Yeah, for a 2018 release, it's super refreshing in terms of, I think, the comedy movie landscape as a whole. Because we really, as audiences, we invested heavily in one or two types of comedies over the past, what, decade and a half? And... It really set the stage for something like Game Night, which is not doing anything terribly groundbreaking or innovative. It's just committing to a couple things that are they either harken back to before the modern comedy landscape, or they just apply a couple, couple proven techniques to what they're doing, and it makes for a hilarious movie and a really well-made one too. Yeah, very well made, uh, and I think it's kind of sad that this is the state of comedy right now when. This is a movie that just sticks with its plan. It's very, it's heavily scripted, which is unlike most comedies today. And it's kind of sad that this is outside the spectrum of what comedy can be right now, it seems. Like, this is this is the odd movie out, and that shouldn't be the case. And I know that there's a lot going on with genre bending and heavily scripting something, but this should be the standard of comedy, I think, right now. Well, and it was for so long, right? And and that's really, we should say, this is why we're talking about this. Even though this, I mean, this had a great box office, it was reviewed very well. And when you look up discussions or forums of people talking about it, everyone's got glowing reviews. I just find that I don't hear about it coming up in conversation that much. And it's certainly an, enough of an outlier in its release landscape that uh, it's worth exploring sort of what it's doing different from everyone else. Yeah, and as committed scene analyzers, you know, there's plenty mm-hmm. of scenes we could have chosen from this film mm-hmm. to discuss on the podcast today, but we have singled in on one of the more comedic scenes, kind of more central in the movie. 
but there we could have picked a number of scenes and had a blast with this. Almost any scene, like you know, throw like uh, throw throw the script up in the air and pick whatever's on top of the pile at the end. You're having fun. Like they, there's a lot of investment in every single moment of the movie being number one an opportunity for laughs and number two an opportunity to continue to tell the story. In part one of the multiple arcs that are at play because basically you have three couples who are playing this game night each of them has an arc to varying degrees obviously bateman and mcadams are the main characters and they get more of it but everyone in this movie has something that they're trying to achieve or something they're learning about themselves in the process uh and it's really there's a lot of bang for your buck yeah the fact that even the side characters have arcs and you're actually invested in what they have to say in their stories says about everything you need to know about this movie to like just go and watch it so if you haven't seen Mm -hmm. it check this out uh we are going to spoil a ton of it today Mm -hmm. and it does heavily rely on you not knowing what is going to happen um we want you to give us the final clue to the murder mystery brooks davis order oh my gosh but that would ruin the fun we don't want the fun we just want to win yeah yeah more so than other ones uh that we've talked about there's a lot to be gained Definitely. by going into this as blind as possible. So pause the podcast now. Go check it out. It's also, it's a smaller ask, I'd say, than something like Cretia or Gattaca, where maybe you have to have a cup of coffee first and be in the right mindset to uh, really take it in. This is a this is a fun, fast-moving, well-paced comedy. So go check it out and come back. Nice So you can't always judge a book by its past covers, can you? Mm. Almost a saying. Yeah, it's full of energy, and it should be not a hassle for anybody mm. to watch. Uh, but you know, <laughs> yeah. we're speaking subjectively, so yeah, you know, can't speak for everybody. Um, I do want to just talk, touch on the mm-hmm. budget real quick, because this is one of our kind of favorite mm-hmm. middle-budget type of movies. Uh, nice, solid $37 million budget with a gross from the theater alone, $117 million, which is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. This is what you want to see. These are the kind of movies we love being made. And the fact that this is a 2018 release that took a lot of rewriting and revisions yeah. over the past decade to get to this point. And in multiple producers changed. Uh, I think Bateman was signed on at the very end to be a producer because he was mm-hmm. so in love with the script. Uh, there are so many intangibles here too. To yeah. Into. I mean, so the directors, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, they were brought on to rewrite aspects of it. And it sounds like they really took it from something that would have been more conventional in the landscape at the time and tried to cut out, more obvious tropes include some more i don't want to undersell this and say progressive tropes but just things that you know gave the female characters more to work with and and added some depth absolutely some depth even to characters that just would have been caricatures before um and then i think as i had read they they basically said if they're going to rewrite it they also want to direct it um so they sort of Guaranteed control yeah. on a script that I think had bounced around for four or five years at that point. Um, so, I think I think I read somewhere it was initiated around 2010. The script, oh came, wow, or okay. like was discussed initially. So even earlier, yeah, so, where they were throwing around the concept of just like, can we just make like a thriller or a comedy out of the you know modern concept of like an adult game night? And obviously, that's pretty fertile ground. It's pretty easy to develop that kind of concept, but they really took their time and made sure they got it right, which obviously we appreciate. And obviously it had a, a great return, like a, a budget to box office of about three to one uh, is, uh, is extremely commendable. And the, so the directors were coming off of, I think, Horrible Bosses one or two at that point. Maybe two. I don't yeah. remember. I'd never saw Horrible Bosses two, so it Me could neither. have been that one. <laughs> um, but, you know, Horrible Bosses also had a very similar, like, uh, direct line to my funny bone in a way mm-hmm. that it it was a surprising comedy but this is a definite notch above like the fact that they directed horrible bosses is impressive because that movie mm-hmm. actually was one of the few very funny comedies to yeah. the past decade but this is a whole other level above that well yeah and the other thing that the directors uh, are coming off of was their remake of the national lampoon's vacation which which is tough it got eviscerated and in in one of the things that will link one of these interviews they talked about how like even after they had put all this work into game night and they really loved what they had done they started preparing themselves for it to just be ripped apart too um so it, it must have been a a pretty pretty big relief to see those good reviews coming in and then the the massive box office following a, a mid-budget comedy 
Yeah, and admittedly, they said that they really didn't believe that they were going to get that box office profit, mm-hmm. but the great reviews from week one onward kind of led to this great success, and that's the importance of good critical writing on a movie like this because, you know, by all accounts, the trailers were terrible. Mm-hmm. The posters were terrible. Yep. I remember the poster specifically of just, like, the game pieces. Or or uh, just, like, like Bateman a... and McAdams and the dog, right? Yeah, that's, like, the one, I think, for the DVD, but the initial poster was just the game pieces. There wasn't even, like, yeah. the actors on the cover. And I thought it looked. I thought it was going to be a terrible film, mm-hmm. like a movie based on a board game or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I honestly, uh, I don't. Know, like I don't. A la Battleship. I don't envy an editor's job, like especially in a trailer house, for trying to impart the tone of even a straightforward comedy. And this one is not super straightforward. There's a lot at play. There's a lot of twists, um, for lack of a better term, not dramatic twists, but just uh, opening an opening up of what the plot is and what's actually going on and what's at stake. And there is some genre bending. So I'm not surprised that the trailers weren't very good, but uh, this, this feels like a, like a streaming win, right? Where once it finally does get from theaters and I know more than one person who I talked to when I said we were going to cover this in the podcast or we were looking at it, they were like, Oh yeah, I watched that. Like I was on Netflix one night and we watched it and we're so surprised. I think that may have been how I saw it actually. I can't remember though, because I've watched it a half dozen times since then as I keep getting other friends to watch it with me. Um, yeah, I believe this was just a casual throw it on TV kind of movie. And then I remember, you know, just being glued and laughing my ass mm-hmm. off trying to like keep up with this movie. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's so many, uh, I don't know. Well, I think, so I think the thing we can dive into right now, and we touched upon it earlier is how this movie is a reaction to the Apatow culture of comedies which yeah when we when we're talking about conventional comedies of this era that is kind of what we're mm-hmm. referring to the judd apatow paul feig comedies yeah and they're just they're movies that basically um succeed on the improbabilities of what a, a dozen people really that are out there like seth rogan james franco bill Hader, you know um, uh, jason siegel yeah yeah, and, and nothing against those. There's tons of those movies I really like and tons of those movies like that defined like in high school where, you know, I saw Super Bad, I saw Pineapple Express, some of my favorite comedies. But these yeah, absolutely this approach to filmmaking, which is locked off tripod shots, a reverse on the other person and just start it rolling and let these two funny people riff on whatever the single point of conflict is in that scene and then cut together the best parts um it got it got tired i'd say after 15 years like if we look at whenever knocked up came out yeah knocked up was probably the initiator yeah uh 2007 so 11 years from knocked up to game night a decade of the most profitable comedies being this one style which for however much they capitalized on it truly funny people um the filmmaking i think suffered a bit um and this is something like i'll link well it just got lost i think in the idea that they needed to showcase the uh the improvisation skills of some of these actors Mm -hmm. that's what it seemed to like just rely so heavily on it then they didn't know how to escape that yeah and it's in the show notes but there's a great every frame of painting video essay about how to do visual comedy where Tony Joe very specifically talks about how Apatow movies, as funny as they may be, they have zero visual comedy, and how yes. Edgar Wright was really the person at the time who was doing everything visual that he could. He was playing with the frame. He was taking um, sequences that in Western comedies would just be matter of fact. They'd be rote. Like when you, the example in the video is if you're going to introduce the character going to a new city, how are you going to do that? And in, he shows some examples from Western comedies where, you know, if you're going to New York, you, you show the empire state building, you do some aerial shots of Manhattan, you put a pop song on in the background, you learn nothing about your character other than that. They're going to New York. Right. And then you compare that with hot fuzz where he goes from London way out to the, to the countryside to his new posting. And there's a quick cut, sequence that shows you that he's losing cell reception that's a really long trip um they're playing with the the volume levels and the pacing that there's 
basically that any given minute in a movie is a chance to do something visually and in an auditory sense. It's always a chance to make a joke or tell a story. Yeah, and you can see so much of Edgar Wright's style in something like this, and that's mm-hmm. not to discredit this movie at all no. as being an Edgar Wright ripoff, because it's definitely not that either. But just the idea of saying, let's have fun with the cinematography, let's mm-hmm. have fun with the frame, let's have fun with the camera movements, mm-hmm. and let's actually make something that stands out. All these aspects are in game night, mm-hmm. and trust me, we're not overhyping this. The camera work is exceptional in this film. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like there are small things, like when you're transitioning to a scene where they're about to have a game night, and there are these quick cut Edgar Wright or Sam Raimi style, like chopping celery, pouring chips and guac into bowls, and then putting them on the table. It's just something a little bit more interesting than starting the scene with all that on the table. Right. There actually is a lot of similarities to what we discussed in Drag Me to Hell to mm-hmm. like Sam Raimi's style yep. of like precision and actually knowing what the cut is going to look like. So yep. knowing what the edit looks like. So you know how to get like the close-ups and contrast them with your medium shots. Mm-hmm. There's just so many similarities. And then also I wanted to <laughs> quickly highlight that this is the second movie in our first nine episodes that involves the stealing of a Fabergé egg. Oh, which wow. seems weird. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think... All right, so that's like, you know, Edgar Wright's got his Cornetto trilogy. We're two, we're already two into our Fabergé trilogy, and we'll see. We'll have to find a third one. It, is the Thomas Crown Affair? That's art, right? That's not a Fabergé egg. I think that's... I don't remember. I, think, I never I think saw that's that. that's art. Uh, that's fair. That's pretty funny. Um, How many movies have the theft of a Fabergé egg, and then we found like, two I already? I mean, spoilers for both. Both of them involve, like, a false version of the, va- the Fabergé egg. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So okay. there you go. Well, yeah, and the just the other <laughs> the other thing with the filming to touch on, uh, which this is this comes up a lot, like it's it was a very noticeable thing, but they use this photography technique called tilt shifting, where they have a really specific shallow field of focus, which has this effect, at least in the way that our brains read it, in making things seem small. So when you apply it to a big macro landscape shot, but you've got that really narrow band of focus, it makes it look like it's um like a miniature. So it's used to great effect in this because it makes everything look like Monopoly houses, like little toy cars, things like that. It's it's a wonderful application of a technique that's available to them that fits directly into the theme of the movie. And uh, uh, Barry Peterson, who shot this movie, should be applauded for it. It was a great idea. Well, also just like just from reading the interviews, it sounded like the directors wanted something that was heavily stylized mm-hmm. and controlled. So they worked very closely with the cinematographer and from reading a bit about the Fabergé egg scene, they worked very closely with the stunt choreographers to make mm-hmm. sure that the camera work was consistent through that scene with the rest of the movie. Yeah. There was an immense amount of effort put in by the directors to just make sure that this camera work was what it is. Yeah. And uh, I think that that should be applauded too, because I don't think that's always the case. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would say like, if you were, if you're going to do a study of like Edgar Wright's movies and then look at, um, ancillaries and, and contemporaries and stuff like that, I would look at these two guys. And again, none of this is ever a knock against the quality of the filmmaker if they are paying homage or borrowing techniques and things like that. When it makes a good movie, they've done their job properly, even if it's Edgar Wright borrowing from Sam Raimi or it's Goldstein and Daly borrowing from Edgar Wright. Right? Like, I, I think it's super yeah, impressive. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't think that we're like we can really knock these two directors no. for even like being influenced by that kind of stuff because that's what movie making is all about. You know, you need to take from like the important and the most influential mm-hmm. directors and apply what works for your movie. And that's the biggest takeaway probably from Game Night is that they just used everything in their arsenal to craft a movie that actually related to board games and just games mm-hmm. and it's like kind of what I wish comic book movies did is really embrace the comic book aspect of them. Yeah. And kind of you know be more stylized and well know, and that's and that's your that's, comic book yeah as a comic books as a medium more often that's your other connection this really here. worked yeah is that um, right Daly and Goldstein worked on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs with Lord and Miller who worked makes a lot of sense who actually. worked on um, on Into the Spider Verse which again has that integration of comic book stylization directly into that blood and DNA of that movie. Right. So these people who just I think they, they take this approach to creating movies that is the way this movie looks and sounds and moves and operates are all opportunities to do something. There is no one that is yeah, the priority. Exactly. Nothing's wasted. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's super impressive. And again, like we were saying, all of these things have been present in comedies. You know, if you go back four, five decades, right? There were scripted comedies were how they started. Um, it's just that in in the late aughts, we uh, we 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 made one type of comedy really popular, and so everyone capitalized on that as they you know rightfully so because it kept making tons of money so it was really nice to see this thing as a breath of fresh air just uh, come out of the woodwork and surprise you yeah absolutely like a a true genuine surprise and uh not one that i will ever like i don't know undercut because this is an absolute standout from the past decade and i don't say that lightly Mm mm-hmm would you like to perhaps dive into this scene that we've I think it's time to get into out? the scene for sure. It's a it's a bit of a longer sequence itself, so we, we should get to it. Any plans for this evening? Uh, no. Perhaps a game night? We're just gonna stay in, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Boring. Mm. I see. Well, uh, as always, I want to start with the tagline of the movie and uh kind of going hand-in-hand with the very simplified posters, ad campaigns, and trailers. The tagline's nothing that special, and it's simply, this is not a game. (laughs) So it's it's as basic as it gets. I mean, it it does the job. I I would give it, you know, it's better than Gattaca. It's not as good as as some of the others that we've looked at. Definitely not as good as uh, Shin Godzilla, Um, but uh, it it, it does the job. Yeah, I'll give it a... (laughs) A two out of five. Yeah, yeah, sure. Could be worse. Maybe we should start ranking them and rating them as we go okay. through all the, all, right. all the taglines. Maybe the podcast just becomes about taglines. Yeah, we should just do a side Get podcast. really focused. <laughs> <laughs> Break them down word by word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's get into this scene. Okay, so the scene summary. Uh, we have the scene actually has a break in the middle of it, but we are going to talk about both ends of the scene. So the first, it begins at 32.25 and in the movie and goes till 36.36. Um, and then we pick it back up at 42.40 and it goes to 44.51. So, you know, we have about a four-minute scene and then we pick it up and we get the last two minutes of the scene, approximately. So, after tracking down his brother Brooks to a local dive bar, Max uh, and Annie confidently walk into the bar to scope out the joint. Thinking that it's all part of game night, they humorously build up the confidence to hold up the three men in the bar who appear to be holding Brooks hostage, forcing them to the floor with Pulp Fiction-inspired vigor. There's a scene break that catches the audience up with the other two couples, when they, and when we return to the bar, Max and Annie have recovered the keys from one of the thugs and rescue Brooks, who tries to tell them that this is not part of the game. Annie and Max only actually realize this when Annie shoots the supposedly fake gun in the air, uh... And dropping it in surprise recoil, the gun goes off again, shooting Max in the arm, uh, causing alarm before the three are chased out of the building. End scene. Blood! Oh my god, I shot you! You f***ing shot me! You got me loose before we all get shot! Yeah, so this, I, I am starting to realize that if you wanted to box us in and the scenes we pick, I think a majority so far have been this transition from Act 1 to Act 2 or the transition in a character's arc. But really, that's that's what we, I think, every time we're looking for a scene that has some meaning to the overall movie, it's easy to pick one of these ones where it helps bring you from that first setting to the middle third of the movie. And that's what this one is doing. It's where Max and Annie find out that they're not playing the game they thought they were. The scene break in the middle is where the other two couples find that out as well. It's really well-timed where essentially it brings the audience in for, what's that, a minute and a half for that second part of the sequence where you know it's, it's real and they don't. So McAdams is carrying around a live gun. Uh, they're they're dealing with legitimate kidnappers and thugs and uh, and they're just having fun with it and it's it's a source of a great amount of conflict and tension between the two the two things at play. Well, I guess one of the things we missed in our introduction is how much this movie balances the two genres of comedy and thriller, and mm-hmm. it, this scene particularly really plays with that aspect too because we have a live gun that we now know is live, and mm-hmm. then we have we cut back to Rachel McAdams pointing it at the at the kidnappers dropping it in front of one of them and the guy kind of like freaks out and recoils like yeah. he's scared of it and then uh yeah and she and then she puts it in her mouth 
when they when she's posing for the photo and you're just and and by this point you know yeah the gunplay <laughs> in the sequence is so funny uh especially and i mean both of us watching it for the discussion that we're having now there's a lot of reward value especially for that first act of the movie when you know that everything is real yeah i find it hard to put myself back in the state of mind where you didn't know because it's so funny to see mcadams walking around with a live gun and like she's singing along to hansen into it and like she points at the one guy's face i think that's third eye blind man she's or oh is it okay oh wow hansen it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't mbop no, semi charm life, third eye blind. Uh, wow. I'm packed and I'm holding. I'm smiling. She's living. She's golden. She's this for me. Sing it to the mic. Jesus. No. Cut that out, please. I'm no so way, embarrassed. I'm keeping, keeping that in. <laughs> You're... Yeah, but I'm I'm losing I'm losing my my bona fides for my other podcast, <laughs> which is all about late '90s pop. Um, you can't have that. Um, no, so so she's 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 singing into this uh, into this real gun, and she points it at one of the thugs in his face. She's like, "Sing into the mic!" Yeah, and uh, you can see you can see how disturbed he is by this. It's so funny. I mean, I, I don't know where you want to begin. I think we could maybe even on a bit of a higher level talk about Bateman and McAdams as comedic presences. Okay, sure, we can get into it because the movie and their relationship in the film kind of hinges on the fact that they are trying to have kids but can't because supposedly Jason Bateman's character Max is too stressed and can't mm-hmm. produce. So they have kind of a serious discussion at the bar and they talk about like what having kids will do to their social mm-hmm. life. And there's a nice little moment there, but then it quickly transitions into them like figuring out how to like <laughs> figuring out how to figure out if the bartender is an actor or how to like mess him up. Well, it's actually, so it's nestled right in the middle of that. And I love how naturally they attack the idea of we need to, a couple times throughout the movie, you have to touch back on their primary arc, which is, are they ready to have kids? This is something that they're on the same page. It's really nicely done how they cut back to that that kind of idea every once in a while to remind you that this is the stakes at play with this couple. Yeah, they come into the bar and they're already sort of making fun of the fact that it's all... It's all make-believe, and they're pointing out that they think the bartender is like a local, you know, like a theater, regional theater actor who's been hired to play the bartender, and that he wouldn't know how to be a bartender. Let's give him a test, okay? Let's order a couple of drinks that only a real bartender would know how to make, oh, right? Smart. This guy, um, fun fact, is played by John Francis Daly's dad, which is plays great, the bartender. He's so good. His he's like, really lines good. are yeah. so good, yeah. actually. Well, they do like they 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 return. They call back this joke about Brooks being better looking than Max because Max comes in and he says something to the effect of like, "Have you seen a guy who looks like me, but he has a stronger chin and better cheekbones?" You um, you didn't happen to see a fella brought in here looks a little bit like me, but he's just got a little bit of a sharper chin and and higher cheekbones. And the guy's like, "So a better looking you?" So a better looking guy, right? And it, it like. They they have callbacks and and then and then they're like let's test them and they they order complicated drinks not not before uh, McAdams whiffs ordering a complicated yeah, drink yeah she messes up she gets <laughs> and she vodka orders tonic. a vodka tonic yes uh, uh, could I please have a vodka tonic and like again like the uh, the timing at play with some of the stuff that McAdams does and the natural way in which she reacts to things throughout this movie she is so funny and i don't think she's been funny really since mean girls i don't think she's had the chance to be this funny you know she did a lot of dramas obviously she really really went hard in the paint for like true detective season two and i think she's really good at that stuff i I think there's plenty of reasons why she became iconic in notebook with gosling and why that was such a big deal hey that movie Um, still is pretty good it hits yeah and uh but uh she's so funny and it's it is such a treat anytime you get to see her in something like this where it's not funny as a part of the character which even i would say about mean girls mm-hmm. um right. but like the the point is that is that she's funny in this and as we mentioned before like the guys uh daily and goldstein when they were rewriting the script they were like honestly like the the wife characters some of the girlfriend characters they didn't have a ton to do and they gave them a lot more agency gave the character a lot more opportunities to be funny and then they got they got lucky in casting McAdams not that there weren't other actors who could have done the role but she's really good in this 
I almost think that not seeing her in very many comedic roles, or at least being so far between her comedic roles, really allowed mm-hmm. this to surprise. And not that I didn't know she could hold this level of comedy. It's just like how good she is at it and how natural it came. Yeah. It like almost like catches you off guard. And like then also mm-hmm. the chemistry between her and Bateman is pretty impressive, yeah. especially in the scene like where they're ordering the drinks and he kind of, she messes up and he kind of just like, that's great. That's great, honey. Well done, honey. <laughs> there's like and that's the thing we, we'll get to him in a minute because i have i have a lot okay. to say about bateman but uh uh yeah just i mean to shout out you know canadian talent rachel mcadams Absolutely. um you know a uh a double tr- a double threat at least if not well, a triple threat if you want to throw in like all the sort of knife fighting in true detective i was gonna say um, were you gonna say double trouble double trouble sure whatever she She's good at a lot of things, and uh, I think she's really funny in this. But sorry, so continuing in that sequence, so then Bateman orders a Harvey Wallbanger, and while they're waiting for it to get made, then they have this talk about, again, very naturally bringing up the idea of whether or not they can have kids, and the idea that if they do have kids, they won't be able to do something like this all the time. Um, and it's it fits the scene really well, and then they don't have to find a way out of that conversation or find a conclusion to it because the guy brings the Harvey Wallbanger back. Harvey Wallbanger, and it's it's really well directed and very well sequenced. And, and just to like continue with the, how the comedy is performed in this movie, I just love how mm-hmm. there's that brief moment. He's like, you know what? This is actually like very good, very tart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So Bateman, I was gonna say my my big. My big hot take, I don't know, maybe it's not that hot, is that he is the greatest straight man of of the generation. Like, I I don't think there is a better one in terms of, like, a comedic foil is what I mean when I say straight man, right? Yeah. You have someone big and goofy, and you have someone playing the normal guy, which uh, gives purchase to the comedy. Well, Arrested and Development between, pretty much cemented yeah, that for him. Yeah, absolutely. Like, And, and I, I, I think there are so many points in this movie where... They let him, th- and this is maybe where you get the improvisation. I I do not believe this kind of stuff would be in the script, but yeah, where he says he tries a Harvey Wallbanger, and he and he his 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 way of imparting that, like you know what, I've never had one of these before. It's really good. It's kind of tart. There's that. There's a sequence earlier where, um, where where he, they're they're being pestered by their annoying neighbor, who we'll talk about later. I think in depth as a a joint shout out because it's one of the great strengths of this movie. But there's a part where the, the the conversation naturally fades and then there's a big pause and he goes, here we go. And they start, and they just walk <laughs> yeah. out of the scene. And ba- Bateman is, I think he's a genius at these things of being a straight man. And I'd done some research on it and I guess his his thinking of being a straight man is pretty strategic in that if you're the straight man, you get to be in most of the scenes, right? Which is amazing. Um, yeah, which is it's a economic. good point, right? You need the straight man, and the straight man is what makes the comedy really work. Um, and I also find that like he is a very um, consistent straight man. I think a lot of straight men, if you were going to try to point them out, like Tina Fey on Thirty Rock, or even like Steve Martin or Leslie Nielsen or uh, Desi Arnaz, like depends on how far you back want to go back, like all the way to you know Abbott. I think they always get their chance to be the goofy ones by, you know, subverting that relationship. But I find that Bateman in so many of these things, he's playing that surface that the other people bounce off of so much and so often. And uh, I think he's, I think, I think he's the best one we have working right now. Well, he seems to really thrive on that. And the idea that he, he, he likes having control over his projects too. I think that's why he signs on as a producer. So I think mm-hmm. he, he really likes working in this very specific way with both I yeah. guess as far as i know ozarks is kind of similar in terms of how he's able to control so much of his character mm-hmm. um and then yep. you see this character pop up even in, in his directorial debut with uh bad words yeah uh, the not only is the comedy incredibly consistent throughout that movie similar to this but also like mm-hmm. his character plays like the ultimate straight man who just doesn't understand anybody around him basically yeah uh, yeah and and i mean i i think i think it makes sense yeah i think it makes sense that he would be want to be so involved in production and things like that his father was a director and he was a child actor right yeah. so he's been in the industry for a very long time i think it it gives him a really natural camera presence and 
makes him fit into what he's doing very well. And I think he's got a lot of experience that he obviously applies to the works that he's involved in. Yeah, and you know, not to discredit anybody else who had a role in getting this movie in particular off the ground, but it sounded like Jason Bateman really pushed for this to be, you know, Mm -hmm. the director's kind of movie in the sense that this was going to be something different that wasn't being done in comedy right now. And it looked like Bateman was kind of a proponent of that. Well, and that I think that's a really key talent too. Obviously, it's hard to talk about production and producers and what they do and what makes them good yeah, because I think, it's the le- I think it's the least accessible part of the industry right like you're always going to talk about the stars and then if you get a little bit deeper you talk about directors and cinematographers and composers producers are way down there but the ability to see a script in a very early form and know that the concept there is worth digging into because when he signed on it was before Daly and Goldstein had rewritten it so and again, by all accounts, it sounds like it was way more standard and conventional before the rewrites. It wouldn't have had the charm that we're like harping on over and over here. So for him to see what it could be is a, is a real skill. Agree. And he just, he just seems to have that talent. And you're probably right in saying that it has to do with his long tenureship in Hollywood. Yeah. He's been around a very so, long time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, back to the scene, they realize they can't figure out if the bartender is real or not. The bartender says like six words and he delivers them super well. I like the way he says Harvey Wallbanger. Wallbanger. Harvey Wallbanger. You know, like a pirate or something. Yeah. It's 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 he does a lot with very little. Yeah, he does. Uh, he's he's a very good, good. He's a a good dad cameo. Wallbanger. And then they see the door to the back room opens up and they see that Brooks is in there and I love again any you can shoot this any way you want it doesn't have to be interesting but they made it interesting even a little tiny way where it's a shot reverse shot from within each room so you see bateman and mcbadams from brooks's room perspective and reverse too it's just there there's a there was a simpler more direct way you could have gone about it and they didn't and i like that little shot reverse well, yeah, and they did this a bunch of times throughout the movie, too, like shooting through so many different layers of other, like, of mm-hmm. rooms, or usually, you know, like, they like would crowd frames and then just shoot really long shots. So you're, like, mm-hmm. getting all this foreground buildup, confusion sometimes, but I thought it worked really, really well, and it just creates yeah. a much more visually appealing film. Yeah, I mean, it's the little things where, you know, I think if we weren't examining the scene in this detail, I may not have actually thought or realized of that shot reverse shot but again any of these things if you can make it slightly more visually interesting i think you're slightly more likely to keep people watching and keep people engaged right it's it's these little one or two percent improvements that go a long way well yeah like we are sitting here dissecting this scene but you know when we're actually watching a movie like this you don't really pick up on all these subtleties that the camera work and the directors are doing necessarily it's mm-hmm. after multiple views, and but it really is the accumulation of these things while you're watching the movie that makes you feel the way you feel at the end, right? And mm-hmm. it's why everything seems to work when you're watching yeah. the movie because you're just so invested, and you don't. And part of the beauty of what this movie's doing is that you don't always—it's not always obvious why because it's just like interesting camera work. They change up how they shot different characters, and you just your yeah. brain subconsciously will pick this up if you're watching mm-hmm. carefully and. It's not like you have to be able to pick all this stuff out like we are right now. No. Well, and, you know, we talked about it in the Oceans episode, but Soderbergh often is just, how can I make this interesting? How can, what's a different way to shoot this? We talked about he sent out the second unit cinematographer to shoot the air, the airplane coming in. He's like, just show me something I've seen before. So you can shoot it the most obvious way, but if you shoot it in a slightly less obvious way, it's just that much better. Um, So then the rest of the scene sort of plays out with, McAdams doing a pretty solid Honey Bunny impression from Pulp Fiction. Any of you f***ing pricks move and I'll execute every mother f***ing last one of you! Very nice, honey. Pulp Fiction, anybody? Right? It's a classic. We love films. It's pretty good. When they decide, they decide to stick up the bar. I did, I did a little A-B listen myself. Like, Honey Bunny, I think, is probably a tough impression. She's got a lot of intensity. Uh, but I also think it works at McAdams... Again, imparting the idea that they think this is so silly that McAdams would would be like, well, this is an opportunity to quote a movie that I love, right? And then to drive it home further with Bateman being Bateman pointing out what the movie is, like yeah, he's walking yeah. around like an audience member and being like, and he, he's got that throwaway line where he's like, we love films, yeah. right? <laughs> it's so 
it's it's pretty dorky and it's a lot of fun and then McAdams has to get them down into like she obviously she has no experience in holding people up so she gets very confused in the process of telling them how to submit themselves and she makes them it ultimately she makes them do like a yoga pose mm-hmm. child's pose child's pose child's pose and uh and then that's that's when that's when we cut away out of the scene and you sort of you have both of the other couples in scenes where they concurrently find out that the kidnapping was real there are real guns at, at play and there are real things at stake and to reiterate we left rachel mcadams and jason bateman's characters with the three kidnappers on the floor at gunpoint mm-hmm. thinking that it's yeah. a fake gun so once you cut away from that scene you're seeing the other two couples understand the reality and the intensity of the situation yeah and then we come back to rachel mcadams still pointing the gun at them on the floor and max is searching them and he finds the keys Mm -hmm. yeah like she's she's dancing at the jukebox to semi-charmed life by third eye blind which we all know yeah and uh and yeah she's lip syncing she's trying to get the guys to sing uh she drops the gun at one point right and there's a great like cut reaction shot where one of the robert one of the thugs sees it and uh, bateman picks it up and holds it incorrectly and he's kind of like shaking it at him he's, he's like, like don't don't make me use this he's right like, wouldn't want to shoot you <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then uh yeah and then so they get the keys they they get into the back room and they sort of rub it into brooks's face while his he's his mouth is taped over and he's obviously trying to tell them that he's been actually kidnapped He's on the run from the Bulgarian who's going to kill him for double-crossing him. And they're they're taking selfies and things like that. Um, they're and, rubbing yeah, it in his face. And this is yeah. where uh, Rachel McAdams' character Annie puts the gun in her mouth to pose for the selfie. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. she bites the gun for the selfie. Um, Max gets a phone call from one of the friends who says, no, it is real. They take the tape off Brooke's face, and he's also telling them it's real. And they don't believe him at first either. And it's not until basically... Um, McAdams starts like pretend firing the gun um, to make fun of it. Very much, honestly, uh, it stuck in my mind like uh, Jonah Hill's character in This Is the End. There's a sequence where he's got a real gun and he's pretending to shoot people. He's holding it incorrectly. Um, but uh, the gun goes off. It surprises her and she drops it. It goes off again and shoots Jason Bateman in the arm. I love and, the uh, shot of him reacting to it, by the way. It's, he like kind of swings mm-hmm. away. And he kind of just like looks yeah. at his arm. It's actually like, you know, in a movie as like as ridiculous as the scene is, like his reaction is so good and uh, seems yeah. very genuine. Like he, the way he just kind of like, ow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's such a surprise that because like there is none of the energy at play or that would be at play if they knew it was a real gun. So even the even the reaction to being shot is not the same way this guy would react if he knew there was a chance of him being shot so yeah there's this great natural he just kind of flinches away from the gun and then you get the shot of the blood coming out of his arm and then the reverse shot up on his face where i i don't know again if it was improvised or not i would assume they left this one up to jason bateman for what he says Mm -hmm. and it's pretty funny what he chooses to say blood right blood yeah he just says blood and they say and then mcadams is like oh my god i shot you and he's like yeah you shot me and they're they're flipping out so the kidnappers are trying to get into this back room, and this is where we have another arguably unnecessary but super creative shot um, come up either you know between the directors and uh, and Peterson, where they lock it off with the deadbolt of the door. Uh, so they basically they lock off the camera's rotation with the rotation of this deadbolt as uh, one of the kidnappers is reaching through and hitting it with like a plunger, and again it it it, it ratchets up the tension as you see them slowly getting closer to, to accessing the room and you know that the, the stakes are, are real, right? So they're trying to get uh, Brooks untied, uh, Max is bleeding, they have to get out of there right away and this little shot just helps to add to that tension instead of just, I don't know, a standard shot looking at the door being like uh, like pushed against or people ramming it. I feel like typically in a scene like this you just have reaction shots to them like freaking out about the door getting busted down and the guy mm-hmm. who's busting down the door you'd get more of him but instead mm-hmm. no you're focused on this lock that just keeps getting hit yeah. with the plunger and mm-hmm. it sound, it might sound ridiculous if you haven't actually watched this scene but it's incredibly cool how the camera like mm-hmm. works with the lock and it's yeah. very effective. 
Yeah, it's really neat. And then the other thing that helps add tension to it is, and I can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet, Cliff Martinez does the score for Game Night. That's right. And a legend. He, what a what a get. Um, Cliff Cliff Martinez. Uh, I I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration in saying he set the sonic landscape for a lot of movies over the past I don't know ten years. A little bit, a little bit longer. He did the, Neon Demon. He did Drive. Um, yeah, for those less familiar, th- like Drive was kind of a standard setter for the mm-hmm. past decade of synth scoring. Yeah, he did um, the Nick, the TV show with um, with Soderbergh, uh, which uh, Soder- Soderbergh did with uh, with Clive Owen. Uh, I honestly like. I don't think Stranger Things sounds like it does without Cliff Martinez. I actually think the people who compose Stranger Things just kind of blatantly ripped him off i don't think it was different enough um cliff martinez is super important in terms of uh like modern era composers and the fact that they got him for this comedy is so much fun because it really helps them um jump around that line of comedy and thriller in the sequence right when bateman gets shot you have this growling distorted guitar start coming up and then when the kidnappers break into the room you get more of that full like pumping synth it's it's super effective. It just helps even further. It's another tool that uh, helps them reach their goal. It honestly sounds like this a score piece from Drive in that moment when it like ramps up. Yeah, no, I think I think it's super effective. And then you know the scene ends with them running out of the back. They hop in the car. McAdams reverses the car really fast, and she hits one of the one of the kidnappers, which I actually think is a super effective stunt. His gun goes off. He sort of flies away from it. And then there's a callback that I love later when, again, spoilers, uh, these kidnappers were actually fake kidnappers arranged by the neighbor. And there's a great one one line from that kidnapper where he goes, he goes, the lady hit me with her car. Like when they yeah, revealed yeah, yeah. that it's all fake. And it's like, oh, yeah, that guy was like not a real kidnapper. And he got hit by a car in the process. I think it's super funny. For what it's worth, that is a fantastic stunt. Because it really looked like the car revert, like it's not a huge impact or anything, but the it's like a minimal impact that would really hurt yeah. a person in real life. Mm-hmm. It would. It just it, would, it bounces him right off yeah. his feet, and it's super funny. And then the fact that they remember later in the movie to say, to say, okay, wait, if these guys were just acting and they weren't real kidnappers, wouldn't that guy be really upset that he got hit by a car in the process of owing a favor to a cop? And he is. He is upset. Yeah. Yeah. So just one other side note to the scene and the movie as a whole is just like the work of Barry Peterson. We can continue talking about it all day if we want to, but the way that he was able to use these locked off shots, um, and we really only get that at the very end of the scene when they do leave the bar and you get like a locked off shot on the car, like on the car door leaving. But the way that they incorporated this was through something called an R1 arm, which is Mm -hmm. basically a super lightweight camera car crane that attaches to the back and it simulates third person movement. Once again, going hand in hand with this, the idea that this movie is about games and it simulates very much like what a video game looks like. Uh, the directors referred to it as a GTA shot later, even at the airport, they rep, they didn't have the arm because the camera had to be so high up, but they were able to replicate this with CGIing like the, what a drone's camera footage looked like. So they just actually mm-hmm. visually did that uh, all in post-production. Yeah. And uh, the cons- like once again, referring back to our the consistency we've talked about so far, and the amazingly er, the amazingly detailed camera work. This is all just wrapped up in a nice bow here. Yeah, like it's it's a great example of great direction. I think even more impressive that it's two directors because I think there is a real clarity and singularity of vision. So obviously they're very much on the same level. But then from them to Peterson to Martinez to their actors. Everything is consistent top down. Everything trickles down and flows down in that this is all an opportunity to reference a game, to return to the arcs that are play for at play for each couple. Um, everything is consistent. Everything is according to their mission or their vision or their, their artistic statement. Whatever the less pretentious way of saying that, you know? Yeah, to- I totally agree. And, you know, I, if we're ready to exit the scene, I that kind of ties into my shout out. Yeah, by all means. So my shout-out for the week are the board game references throughout the film. And the reason mm. why I like them is not because they are external references, because usually this is not something I care about in the movie. 
it's how subtly that they are incorporated into the scent to the fact that like most people don't pick up on them you know reading through reddit mm-hmm. forums and stuff a lot of people were just adding to lists that other people had created so not you people yeah. might see a few of them but you don't see all of them and that's the beauty of creating something so meta so there's an operation reference there's multiple game of life references there's yeah. a very blatant clue reference a couple like a pretty minimal monopoly reference with the use of the the uh, dog uh the neighbor's yeah. dog but you know that's uh, yeah. apparently that wasn't quite the exact dog used in the monopoly game but it is very mm-hmm. close um there's like a life-size jenga at one point uh mm-hmm. there's a very clear example of hot potato and then a very funny yeah. use of the, like the trap and mouse trap at the very end of the film so there are all these little moments incorporated in the movie mm-hmm. and if you weren't like really using your head like these would just seem like other moments in the film like some of them are very subtle it's not obvious and blatant because i think there's a real lame way to go about this where like the characters are like no like remember like in in jenga we can you know like it's very seamless and it's very subtle to the extent that when we were doing the research and you started listing these it didn't even occur to me like even some of the more opera uh obvious ones like operation I was like, oh yeah, that is a game. It's also one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah, and she's um, and she's like bad at it. Like she can't. Yeah. She like it's like scooping around, hitting his well, bone. And there's like there's there's a there's a buzzer right when you hit the sides yeah. too, right? Like there, it, it's really funny stuff, and it is not heavy handed at all, which I think is a lot of fun. Yeah, like for instance, the game of life references are the fact that they the six of them drive in like the six person car, and it's all laid out like very evenly, like a game of life car. And then the cul-de-sac that they live on is like the loop in Game of Life. So these are like subtle things, but they just add to like, this is what the movie set out to be. It's called Game Night. It's about games. It's about a couple, a competitive couple. And all these things just like flow within to one another. And it's, it's mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It really is impressive how much every bit of this movie is, uh, is used to its fullest potential as just minutes of screen time. Right. Uh, options available to them to keep telling jokes and keep telling their story and like we said there's so much character development there are fantastic character arcs throughout the film and those also are just Mm -hmm. like provided as naturally as what we're talking about these game references there is no heavy-handed like moment where it's like this scene needs to happen because we need to know what these characters are going to talk about to make to get them to the next level it's all very uh subtly put together uh, and then, so my shout out for this week is just uh, I it's the uncredited. A few times. Yeah, it has. I had so many different ideas, and I actually I'm going to I'm going to break the rules, and after this, I, we're going to do a joint shout out because we have to. But fair enough for mine. I'm going to go because I didn't know he was un- uncredited until we did the research. But Jeffrey Wright is uncredited as FBI agent Henderson, who comes in and I think does such a good impression of a bad actor trying to be a serious actor yeah and jeffrey wright's an outstanding actor too yeah like he's he's got a lot of like serious dramatic bona fides yeah. and to see him come in and just lay it on so heavy as this like disney cruise actor who has to play an fbi agent he's got this dumb little flourish with his fbi badge he's got this great part where he goes big and like gets everyone to shut up yeah because he, um, he's not being taken seriously it's funny <laughs> every time and it's so good i love jeffrey wright and i love i I love any time an actor's like yeah yeah, just uncredit me i'll just show up yep it's uh it's always a beautiful thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then uh the joint shout out that i feel like we would be remiss if we did not touch upon is jesse plemons uh batting a thousand every second he's on screen in this movie it's a shame he wasn't in the scene that we talked about but it frankly the scene we picked worked better than any Jesse Plemons scene, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But his performance is absolutely one of the biggest takeaways from watching this. Every time, mm-hmm. it is so funny. Every moment he's on screen, and he plays yeah. it so straight that you have no idea what's going on in this character's head for real. And yeah. as it was said many times by the directors in all the interviews that I saw, at least, that, like the key was him staying consistent and never winking at the audience. It was always played mm-hmm. so straight up that he was this over-articulate and yet seemingly socially inadequate police officer. Yeah. And they had, like, you know, a lot of it, he really helped to sell this genre bend between comedy and thriller. Because I think if you'd never seen it before, 
earlier scenes, you're like, is that going to be the bad guy? Is yeah, exactly. Going to be, is he good? This going to turn into like a horror movie? Cause they do great little visual gags where he'll appear in a previously established frame or they dolly up to his face or where they go over to his house to have a fake game night. And he just fades into darkness yeah, and they don't yeah. know whether they're <laughs> supposed to follow him. He elevates this movie in an already phenomenal cast credited and otherwise um it's the kind of thing where like yeah he was great in breaking bad i never watched friday night lights i've seen him in a couple movies he's a really strong dramatic actor um this kind of thing where i see him in this and i'm like okay any movie that he's got even a a bit role in i'll i'd be interested in watching it right like uh this this week when we're recording this jungle cruise came out like the latest disney movie based on it yeah it's based on an amusement park ride like it's a rock movie, not terribly interested in seeing it, but apparently he plays a really over-the-top, hammy German bad guy, oh, that's and so now I want to see it. Oh, that'll be right? so good, yeah. Jesse Plemons yeah. is an absolute treat. Yeah. He's a guy that will just draw me to a property now, because I, I really think what he does in this is special, and it's so funny. Yeah, you can take our word for it. If there is ever a off-the-beaten-path movie that Plemons stars in, we will uncover it and do it on an episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that probably wraps it up for game night this week. Yeah. Uh, had a lot of fun rewatching it. I will have fun the next time I watch it. And, uh, yeah, if you still haven't seen it at this point in the podcast, get on it. That's your that's your movie tonight. A plus side is we didn't spoil the ending, and we didn't spoil the final cameo, which we're just going to leave as a mystery to anyone who mm-hmm. has not watched the film yet. Yeah, we touched upon a couple things that definitely you don't find out till later, but we left a good amount of this untouched so uh you know kudos to us <laughs> yeah we we would love everybody <laughs> to watch this movie this is a this is a treat yeah and and actually on that note before we get to our recommendations along with asking for you know if you're on itunes give our podcast a review we'd really appreciate it it would help us out we also uh would love to hear from you over email uh, or on our instagram of course um I'm out there operating the Instagrams. If you want to send a message, uh, you want DM directly and just let us know if you watch something we recommended, you watch something we did a movie on. I We love engaging those things. I, I share comments with Taylor too. Um, so by all means, uh, let us know if and when you watch this for the first time. Uh, if you enjoyed it, if you prefer email, send us an email at singleservingcinema at gmail.com. Uh, if we get enough input, things like that, we'll certainly down the line look at doing a little like mailbag component to a future episode where we can sort of talk about one-line reviews from our from the listeners and things like that yeah ultimately we'd just love to hear some feedback from all of you listening so please uh, don't mm-hmm. be afraid send us an email we'd love to hear from you just like uh, you know communicate reach out we'd love to hear if you're if you're enjoying the recommendations if you have different thoughts on scenes we look at but as for recommendations this week i'm going to recommend something that i'm sure lots of people have seen it's not a super obscure recommendation it's akira katsuhiro otomo's 1988 seminal anime film it's pretty obvious in the in the annals of anime movies but i think it's relevant right now because it takes place in neo tokyo in 2019 shortly before the tokyo olympics the 2020s which is what we're doing right now and uh, there was a lot of activity online about how in the movie when they show the countdown to the Neo Tokyo 2020 Olympics, there's all this graffiti saying, just cancel it. Don't do it, right? It's not safe. And obviously that lines up a lot with the current health climate around the Olympics. Um, no need to get dive into the politics, but I think it's a, it's a very relevant time to uh, revisit Akira. So I'd recommend it. Yeah, I love Akira. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I actually totally forgot about the Olympic context. So that's fantastic yeah. and well-timed. Good job, Tim. Yeah, yeah. What do you got this week, Tay? Uh, well, just something I watched pretty recently, and it's one of the only comedies that I could even say is remotely a comedy that I watched recently, uh, and that is mm-hmm. Richard Linklater's 2006 A Scanner Darkly. Uh, this yeah. is one of my all-time favorite films, uh, and not one that is discussed too much. Uh, even within Linklater's dis- uh, filmography, this is not yeah. that common that's br- or to be mm-hmm. brought up. And for those of you who don't know, this is a movie about a drug epidemic, uh, there are very light comic, comedic moments. There are very dark, dramatic moments. It's a really nice mm-hmm. shuffle uh, and well off the beaten path of most films that call themselves animated because this is all rotoscope. So it's actually shot 
live mm. and then animated over top of. So quite a distinct style that maybe mm. is the first thing people think of when they think of this movie. But uh, the cast is also outstanding. It's Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, Woody Harrelson, Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. There, there are so many fun moments with all the characters. And I think it's a particularly hard-hitting, not in a super dramatic or sad way but a hard-hitting finale and overall like global perspective that is provided mm-hmm. and if you uh, haven't seen this one and you're a fan of Linklater's style like this is a little bit different but it definitely yeah. conveys some of his themes and uh outlooks on the world yeah yeah I know, i'm a big fan of scanner darkly i haven't watched it in a while and and you're right in terms of its context with Linklater, i forgot it was a Linklater movie it's just not one you think yeah of exactly in uh sh- in his legacy it should be but- noted that it's based on the book a book by philip k dick i should also say that mm-hmm. yeah but uh it's a solid one and uh just a couple little bonus recommendations if you like that interpolated um rotoscope style check out undone on amazon uh, it's a TV show, very short. It's done in the same style. I think it's really cool. It's got Bob Odenkirk. Um, and uh, and there's a YouTube creator named Joel Haver who does... He got famous for doing this rotoscope style over little silly sketches. And uh, we'll link one of those in the uh, in the comments too. They're lots of fun. Just a couple minutes. Yeah, lots of show notes today. So check them out. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, does it for the full episode this week. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope you have fun watching game night and uh, at your next game night don't let your little brother uh, rile you up yeah let us know how your next game night goes and let us know what you think of this film we'll see you guys next time hi everyone tim here with a quick note in celebration of our 10th episode which comes out in two weeks we're bringing on a guest to talk about one of our favorite movies blade runner 2049 this is going to be a special extra long episode and it's going to follow a new format so make sure to watch or re-watch blade runner 2049 before it drops we'll see you then